Father, we do again thank you for this wonderful privilege of being able to come before you and to sing your praises, to declare your excellencies, to exalt your name. And uh, as your servants said, come let us exalt your name together. And I thank you for the privilege of doing this. Lord, I do pray that as we look into your word, you would expose our hearts, uh, show us where they stand before you, that we would rightly respond to your word so that you would be greatly magnified. We commit this time to you now in your son's precious name. Amen. Well, having finished uh, the book of Second Thessalonians, we continue our, our summer break in a sense, uh, looking at some individual passages that we need to be reminded of before we begin our next uh, book And so continue to be praying for what we'll be doing as we move closer to that. But today we're going to see how we are to evangelize those who appear to be interested in following Jesus Christ. Now there's a lot of evangelism going out there with those who are not interested. Uh, Whether it's just yelling from the street corner, repent, whatever it might be. But what about those who are actually interested, who are coming to church, want to know about Jesus. They want to know but they say they're seeking from at least their perspective. How are we to evangelize those who appear to be open to the gospel? Well, today we're going to take a look at what the Lord Jesus did concerning one young fellow who came to him desiring to know how to have eternal life. You think that's the most wonderful question in the world, and it is. It should be a, a shoe and should be a certain thing. Just speak out the gospel and you're done and he's saved, Right. Well, Jesus doesn't quite do that with this gentleman, and there's some lessons for us to learn in trusting the Lord and allowing him to lead us to share exactly what we should share so that this person would see themselves rightly and hopefully be saved. Because as we will see, with man, salvation is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And it's been on my heart to encourage and equip the body to be able to ready to share, to have uh, ready to share the hope that we have, uh, Colossians chapter 3.15. So with that in mind, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19, and we're looking at verses 13 to 26. And I shared last week the context of Matthew. I'll briefly share it again. Uh, King Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the, the Son of God, God in human flesh, came to his own people, the Jews, who were sitting in darkness. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we know the Word uh, came and dwelt among us. It became flesh and dwelt among us. God took on human flesh. And the people who would name the name of the Lord were sitting in darkness. They were still in their sins. And they saw him manifest his truth and the, the light, as we see, his, his righteousness and the truth affirmed by the miraculous concerning his person, and they still did not respond. His message from the beginning was repent and believe. Mark chapter 1, repent and believe the gospel. Turn from your sinfulness and believe in the Savior who himself, Jesus Christ. And it's been now about two and a half years since Jesus began ministering. And within that time, the people have heard the message, but they have hardened their hearts and closed their eyes, and they are unrepentant. And Jesus condemns them as an evil and un, an evil and adulterous generation. You know, it's one thing to reject Jesus; it's another thing to take on another religion, to be adulterous, to be be that which is is, is seemingly following the Lord, but really is not. Really is not. And then we also saw the religious leaders who hated Christ uh, stepping up their efforts to destroy him, to kill him. And we see the Lord Jesus withdrawing from the multitudes, uh, even though he's still around them here and there, but focusing on training his disciples. And then we see him moving towards the cross and uh, recognizing as he's going towards Jerusalem and sharing with his disciples that he has to uh, suffer at the hands of the, the, the leaders and he must be crucified, die, and he would raise on the third day. 
And then we see the Lord continue to instruct his disciples in chapter 18, revealing how he loves uh, his people, how he loves the sheep, and how in, when the church is there, how the church is to go after those straying sheep, that Lord Jesus is the chief shepherd. He loves them, and his church is going to go after them how to do that. And what we are to do when a brother or sister repents of their sin, we are to forgive them. We're to forgive them. And then we see in chapter 19, again, the Pharisees attempting to trip Jesus up with the question of, of divorce. And, and we, we learn from Jesus then about divorce, or remarriage. We learn about uh, singleness. We learn about all those things earlier in chapter 19. And now we come to our passage where we're going to see, you know, from Jesus, how we should evangelize those who appear to be seeking eternal life, actually going to Jesus at least from their perspective, to seek and have eternal life. Now, our passage actually goes all the way uh, uh, to the end of the chapter, but we don't have time to do that. We're just going to go to chapter or verse 26. So let me begin in verse 13. Then some children were brought to him so that he might lay hands on them and pray, and the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the children alone. Do not hinder them from coming to me. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And after laying his hands on them, he departed from there. And behold, one came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said to them, Which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? And Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieved, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, Then who could be saved? And looking upon them, Jesus said to them, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And so here we have a section of seemingly unrelated portion with the bringing the children, 13 to 15, but I believe it connects to what we're seeing in 19 here and also what we saw back in early chapter 18. And so how are we to evangelize those who are seeking, those who are seen to be seeking eternal life? How do we evangelize them? Well, I think first of all, we need to recognize that entrance of the kingdom comes only through repentant, humble, dependent faith in Jesus. We need to understand how you get in, you see, because so often we're so ready to share facts with people and they're not repentant, they're not humble, they're not uh, coming as a child, they're very prideful. We need to see the basis of how someone gets saved. And the Lord Jesus shares this here for us. And we need to be ready to even share those passages that expose where someone is not humble, someone is not repentant, that they might see themselves and be humbled and be repentant. So here we have verse 13. Then some children were brought to him so that he might lay hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And after laying his hands on them, he departed from there. So Jesus is in the Perean area, which is called Judah uh, by the Jordan. And he's on his way to Jerusalem via an easterly and southerly route and ultimately to be crucified and to rise from the dead. And during this journey, he continues to instruct his disciples in the midst of ministry. Notice again, verse 13, then some children were brought to him so that he might lay hands on them and pray. 
Now, this was a very common practice for the Jews. They would bring their small children and infants to the rabbis and have them pray for them and bless them. And it's interesting in a parallel account in Luke chapter 18, and we'll see Luke 18 and also Mark chapter 10 in parallel accounts, uh, that, uh, that these were actually called babies here. They were bringing their babies that's what Luke shares. And indeed, Luke turns the, uses the term basically translated from, it could be translated unborn or newly born or baby. It's speaking of a small uh, infant. We see that in Luke chapter 18, verse 15. Actually, I'll read this for you. And they were even bringing, they were bringing even their babies to him, Luke chapter 18, 15, so that he might touch them. Uh, but when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. So I believe speaking about these small children, infants, and the custom was that you would bring them to someone who, who is following the Lord, someone who is leading, a rabbi, whatever it might be, to, to uh, pray for them and to bless them. And we have similar things, not, not like the false stuff in terms of churches where they would do infant baptism and see that they're saved. That's, that's, that's heresy. But, but yet, uh, like bringing a child to be prayed for and showing the desire of the parents. We desire our child to follow the Lord. We want prayer that that would happen, that we would instruct him in the fear and admonition of the Lord, that, we would, that, that he would or she would be, truly become saved and follow him all the days of their life. So we understand that. So we've got the people doing this. It's kind of a ritual. We don't know where their hearts are at, uh, but they're bringing their babies to Jesus. And then notice what happens. It says that he might lay hands and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. Rebuked them. Uh, that's a pretty strong word. Uh, the disciples are rebuking people bringing these babies. Okay? This is a pretty interesting scene. You think, you know, everybody that knows the Lord's going to be doing the right thing, right? Well, you got the disciples and they're learning a lot and so are we, right? And it's when we focus on Christ, he shows us uh, at times where we are in error. And hopefully we're willing to, to learn. And I believe the disciples are. And they're, so they're rebuking. Uh, they evidently think Jesus should spend his time uh, doing other things than praying for a bunch of babies. Okay? And so uh, uh, here, uh, they eventually try to stop, stop, stop him. And this grieves Jesus. This actually grieves him. Look at uh, Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Verse 13, they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, he was, he was, he was uh, in a sense, grieved, like, what are you doing? Okay, and said to them, okay. So these people are, are bringing their babies and Jesus to pray, and the disciples are, are saying, don't do that, don't do that, don't come near him, no, 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 you know. And uh, Jesus is indignant. So what does he do? Uh, and the disciples rebuked them, but Jesus said, back in our passage, verse 14, let the children alone, do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And after laying his hands on them, he departed. Now, if we just read Matthew 19 alone, we might not pick up the significance of what Jesus is saying here. Uh, because he is uh, pointing out the demeanor of those who will enter the kingdom of God or inherit eternal life. Indeed, turn back to Matthew 18. He has shared this already. He has shared this very thing. And you see Jesus teaching the same truths over and over and over again. And so he has shared this. And we go to Matthew 18, invite them in. Whenever anyone calls during church, say, come on in. You know, uh, but... Uh, uh, Matthew 18, and look at verse 2. And he called to himself, a, a child to himself, and set before them, and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Here's where he's really explaining what he means by being like a child. He says, unless you're converted, the term converted literally means turn around. Unless you turn from the way you are and become like a child, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. You can't have eternal life, you see? And so you might remember uh, he's speaking of the, the humility that is in a child by nature, physical humility, by the way. They are physically dependent on their parents for everything. If you leave a baby alone, they will die. They will die. Uh, they are not independent. They are 
totally dependent, and it is a physical illustration of how we are to be spiritually in our in our in our internal reality, the internal reality. So he says here, if you unless you turn from the way you are, in a sense, that's the implication of becoming a child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so here he's speaking of the natural humility and total dependency a small child has. Then look at verse 4 of Matthew 18. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, aha, he is the greatest in the kingdom. So he's speaking of humility, absolute dependence, uh, and obviously the infant is the illustration of that. Uh, Infants don't argue with you about uh, what you should do for them. They cry, but they don't argue with you and say, no, I don't want you to do it that way. They just, they are totally dependent by nature and virtue of being an infant. And so Jesus says we need to humble ourselves. We need to turn from our pride, recognize our dependence here. We can't enter. You know, he said earlier, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? Uh, They're the ones who are spiritually bankrupt. They realize who they really are. They realize who they really are. And so we need to recognize that spiritual bankruptcy, our inability to save ourselves, our inability to do anything apart from the living God working out, first of all, salvation and working in our lives. And you remember, he wasn't just talking about babes. He was illustrating believers back in Matthew 18. He says in verse 18, chapter 18, verse 6, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me. It's speaking of believers. You see, if you truly believe in Jesus for salvation, then you truly believe you absolutely need him. You see? That you are not capable of saving yourself, and you need him completely. You are believing in him. You've turned to trust in Jesus. Now, um, here we have uh, Jesus Christ here back at this point now, sharing and reminding his disciples of this again. Back in our passage, then some children were brought to him so that he might lay hands on them and pray, and the disciples were rebuking them. But Jesus said, let the children alone. And he said, do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And so then, based on what he shared a couple of days ago in, in Matthew 18, and here we see what he is saying is it's an illustration, illustration to reiterate the reality that one must turn and be like a totally dependent baby, completely and absolutely dependent upon Christ to save them, to save them. Now, some of you may have never turned from your self-reliance. You believe in Jesus, but yet you rely on your own abilities. You, you rely on something, you rely on a system, whatever it might be. Uh, to be saved, you must realize your absolute inability to save yourself. You know, you don't. You know, if you're drowning in the ocean, you know, you don't say, "Well, I'll, I'll, I'll be fine," right? You realize I need absolutely need to be saved, and you have nothing within yourself you can that can save yourself. Same thing with salvation. You must trust in Christ completely to be saved from your sins and the consequence of those sins. And so then if you've never humbled yourself, if you've never turned or been, as Jesus said, been converted and become like a child, then you haven't been saved because he says you can't enter. If you've never been totally humbled, I'm not talking about just some specific list of things you've got to do to look like you're humble, but truly have been humbled to call upon Jesus. You have not been saved. So you need to be converted and become like these children. So then, sadly, we have uh, in our current modern seeker-sensitive felt-need churches, we have a gospel that falls short day in and day out that does not reveal man's sinful state and need of repentance, but gives a tantalizing, fleshy, slant spiritual promise of a better life, rather than the reality of one's absolute need of salvation from Jesus Christ, salvation from sins, and so, um, sadly, churches these days have uh, brought a false gospel, and there are many false converts. But here we have a guy who actually comes to Jesus, and he actually wants to know basically how to inherit or how to be saved, how to inherit eternal life or how to be saved. And so, for us, how are we to evangelize someone like this? First of all, we need to know that it is through absolute turning and humility one is saved. You see, Jesus is going to unveil that that's not there with this guy. 
that that's not there, even though he appears to be desiring eternal life. He's not going to be totally dependent. He isn't totally dependent. Uh, and he's, Jesus is going to unveil this with this gentleman. So at this point, we need to observe how Jesus shares the gospel and do the same. I'm not talking about cookie cutter. I'm talking about observe what he does in this circumstance and then allow him to use his word to prompt us when he brings us into circumstances. So after laying his hands, verse 15, back in our passage, Matthew chapter 19, his hands on them, he departed from there. And behold, one came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter eternal life, keep the commandments. And he said, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, Hey, not hating to say that part, but all these things I have kept, and what am I still, what am I still lacking? And Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. So Jesus is about the Father's will. He is in his going, having these these situations arise on him. He is on his way to Jerusalem to die, to be suffer and die, and to be raised from the dead, to bear our sins. And in the midst of this, uh, we have this man, this behold, one came to him and said, Teacher, what good things shall I do to man of chain of eternal life? And so Matthew is alerting us, behold, one came to him. Uh, later on, the text reveals that he is a young man and that he was wealthy. He had much property and possessions. Luke chapter 8, verse 18 calls him a certain ruler. So evidently, this young man was a ruler, a leader, maybe in the synagogue, Uh, He was a wealthy, young, religious man. A wealthy, young, religious man. Now, in the book of Mark, we gain a little more information about this portion, how it begins. Turn to Mark chapter 10, and we're going to look at verse 17. Mark 10, 17. And he was setting out on a journey, and a man ran up to him and did what? And knelt before him. This is interesting. Appears like he's humble, right? Knelt before him, okay? And began to ask him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This guy apparently wants to be saved. And it apparently seems to be genuine that he desires to inherit eternal life. Now, what is eternal life? It is a life everlasting. It is, uh, a, it is summarized by a relationship with the living God. Death is summarized by separation with the living God. Jesus said uh, in John chapter 17, This is eternal life, that they might know thee, the one and only true God, and your Son, whom thou hast sent. And so apparently, some would call this guy a, a seeker. Right? He's seeking. But notice, very interestingly, how the Lord deals with him this one who desires uh, eternal life. He doesn't say right away, super duper, pray this prayer and you're in. He doesn't say that right away. There's discernment within this, as we'll see, to expose his sin and his view of God, which is in the way of actually being saved. You see, someone could have given him a canned gospel there and he could have raised his hand and prayed the prayer and thought he was in and he's, and he's there. Well, Jesus does not do that. And we're going to see Jesus knows the heart, and he looked at this man with love. And we're going to see he he shares exactly what he needs to hear, and that's what we need to do. You see, the Lord knows the heart of man just as we do. Obviously, he's he's all-knowing and perfect. We know, like from Romans chapter 3, that there's none righteous, not even one, that there are no one who understands, none who seeks after God, All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. We know that man, and apart from the conviction of God by the Spirit through the gospel, man is not seeking God. Man is not uh, doing it. God draws people unto himself, and God, as we will see, is the one who saves them. So because of sin, no one genuinely seeks after God, unless it is only when God in his Spirit-empowered gospel intervenes that one can be saved. 
And so here we have the Lord begin to share his saving truth to one who desires to be saved. And I want to point out some principles that flow through this passage, and then we'll get to the specifics. But notice Jesus presented his gospel wisely and lovingly. We'll see in a minute that the Lord was perfectly discerning, that he didn't just spit out a canned gospel speech, uh, but the Lord shared what was perfectly tailored and suited to what this man needed to hear in light of what had been revealed about him. And I'm not going to go through each point here, but we'll look at it later on. But Jesus was wise and discerning, and he didn't generate some canned thing like we do, you know, like a, a gospel track or the four spiritual laws or a system of sharing law and gospel. And in those things, there is the truth, and people get saved at times. But he didn't do a canned system to save this gentleman. And people get saved in spite of that, but he didn't do that. The presentation of the gospels we're going to see is, is not something we lay across and force people into. Jesus didn't chase after him after he left, by the way. We're going to see that the Lord Jesus perfectly is perfectly discerning with this gentleman, and we're going to see that he confronted this man's true need, which was to understand his sinfulness and therefore then have eternal life through Jesus Christ. You see, Lord Jesus made it clear at times that we need to be discerning. We don't share the gospel to everyone everywhere, although we want to. That's, that's two different things. It's not wrong to desire everyone around us to be saved. It's not wrong at all, but we need to be careful at which how we do that. If we do it through our own wisdom and power and understanding, it is impossible. But when God does it through us, it is possible, as we will say. Think about what Jesus said back in Matthew 7, verse 6, and I'll read this for you. He said, do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under your feet and tear you to pieces. Don't just throw the gospel all over the place. They're going to trample all over it. They're going to stomp it up. He says, don't, there needs to be discernment uh, in sharing the word of God. There needs to be discernment. And uh, this is where uh, I, get, I get concerned at times. You know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, but I'm grieved at times when I see people on the corner with signs, repent, repent, repent. Now, could someone get saved in spite of that? Absolutely, if the, if the gospel goes out. But I'm grieved at it just being thrown over the place and people driving by and mocking and whatever it might be and getting trampled all over. You say, God is the one who saves, not we in our own wisdom. The desire for everyone to be saved does not give us the, the opportunity to go out and do it any way we want. We need to abide in Christ and allow him to share it through us at the right time, the gospel. We need to be prepared prayerfully and then prayerfully and wisely discerning concerning what we are to speak and when we are to share. First uh, Peter chapter Colossians, First Peter chapter three verse fifteen. We need to be ready to give an account for the hope that we have with us. We need to be ready. We need to have the word in our hearts. We need to be ready to give why we have hope. So sadly, I believe many gospel presentations are not done in dependence on Christ, and they're not done in the context of wisdom and discernment. But here we can learn from Jesus, our perfect example, our perfect example. And if you abide in Christ and you trust in him, you rely on him, trust in him to, t to, 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 to lead you to when to speak and what to say, having been prepared, uh, then uh, God may use you in bringing forth his wonderful truth. Now, a second uh, overall point I want to make is that, uh, is that Jesus shared this in the context of love. He shared this in the context of love. He wasn't yelling at sinners to change. Now, he, didn't, he doesn't stand for sin. He died for sins, right? He took God's wrath for sin. Uh, but in uh, Matthew chapter 10, let's take a look at that. Matthew chapter 10, verse 20. I'm sorry, Matthew, Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 20. And this is his, during his, in his, his conversation with this rich young ruler. And he said to him, Teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth. And looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said. Jesus felt a love for him. There was love in the context of this sharing. You see, so often we can have a horrible attitude towards those who are caught up in their sin. I'm not saying that we justify sin. We should hate sin. But we can have a horrible attitude towards the sinners. And I'm certainly guilty of that. I've confessed that many times. We can have a horrible attitude. 
and yet we should not have that. We shouldn't have a horrible attitude towards them. We should, uh, we should be uh, remembering that the we used to be just like them. Turn to Titus chapter 3. This is a very helpful passage to remember uh, who we were uh, when we're starting to think about those who are not saved. Titus chapter 3. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. And I'm reminding you right now. I'm reminding myself, okay? Um, look at this. To malign no one. To be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Boy, I need to be reminded of that, and you do too, because in our flesh we can be not this way, right? He says, for we were once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. We used to be just like them. may have looked in a different package, but we were just like them. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds we had done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing, regeneration, renewing of the Holy Spirit, which he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We used to be just like them. We need to recognize that and be reminded. And Jesus had a loving compassion towards them. Remember how Jesus was even towards Judas. Right? He was, he, he was truthful, but yet there was love. There was truth and love. So here, he has a loving compassion towards this gentleman, and we need to have a loving compassion. Now, it doesn't mean we don't confront sin. It doesn't mean we, but it also doesn't mean we don't run after people pleading for them. Jesus loved this, had love in his eyes for him, loved him, but he didn't, as we will see, run after this man after he chose him with the other direction. So then, uh, what else can we learn from our passage Well, notice, looking back at our passage more specifically, uh, Jesus begins to use, through his word, to wisely expose this man's view of himself, view of of the Lord and the view of himself, and and then ultimately to expose his specific sin. Back to our passage, Matthew 19, verse 16. And behold, one came to him and said, Teacher, what good things shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good good first thing he's going to do is expose his view of god who is in his midst he's going to expose it now you think this is this isn't very secret sensitive why do you call me good he's saying i want eternal life he's to say wow praise the lord let's pray right now he doesn't say that he exposes something concerning what he had said he's actually keying off of perfectly what this gentleman has said this man respectfully calls him teacher and uh in the book of Luke, calls him good teacher, actually. And so Jesus uh, answers seemingly harshly, but what he is sharing is actually wisely reproving this man's view of Jesus, who is standing right before him. And he said to him, why are you asking me, in his response, why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. He's saying, what good thing must I do? And in Luke, he talks about a good teacher, you know, and he's saying, hey, why do you ask me about doing what is good? Uh, ultimately, implications, you don't believe I'm God, that I'm good, and you think that you can do good, as we're going to say. But he says, Jesus says, there is only one who is good. Why are you asking about that? What is good? There's only one who's good. So right off the bat, he is not allowing this man to interject his wrong viewpoint of God and himself. He corrects him in the context of his interest in eternal life. Okay? And unless you have the right view of who God is, who Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, unless you have the right view, you cannot be saved. You must have the right view. You must call upon the right Savior. Uh, The scriptures talk about other Jesuses. There are other Jesuses, those uh, who are made up in men's uh, minds. Uh, They're not the true Jesus. So then... Jesus confronts him, first of all, concerning his view of Jesus, who was standing right in front of him. And not only does he confront his view of him, he confronts this man's view of himself. He says, basically, no one's good good but God. So if no one's good but God, how could you do a good thing to inherit eternal life? That's the implication. 
Why do you ask me? Uh, why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one is good. Only there's only one is good. The implication is, why do you think you can do a good thing when only God is good? And we're going to get to the bottom line again. With man, it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. You can do no, nothing to be saved. There's not one good thing you can do to be saved. And so he's confronting that with an answer concerning the nature of God. Only God is good. Only God is good. Why would you ask me this when only God is good? You're wrong in your view of me and of yourself. So he's already beginning to expose, based on what he has said, this man's sin, based on his view. You see, there's no way to be saved. There's lots of false gospels out there about good things you might be able to do, but... uh, Uh, We've been saved by grace, and that not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, some of you might have this eternally damning problem. You believe there's something good you can do to inherit life, to eternal life, whether it's come and listen to sermons, whether it's follow God's word. You're doing all these things. You're doing it to inherit eternal life. But that is a fallacy that will lead you to hell. Because we are not able within ourselves to do anything good because only God is good. Only God is good. And so here, the Lord Jesus confronts uh, us with this reality too. Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may attain eternal life? He said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 9. Who can say I have cleansed my heart? I am pure from my sin. Proverbs 30, verse 12, There is a kind who is pure in his own eyes, yet is not washed from his filthiness. If you think that you are clean before God because of something you have done religiously, you are sorely mistaken, because only God is good. And there's nothing you can do to save yourself. You must humble yourself like a child, and you must be converted thus and turn to Jesus Christ. So now we have an interesting... um, Response by the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what he says. And he said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who's good. And now we have a contrast. But if you desire or wish to enter into life, he doesn't even say eternal life, says life. You're dead in your sins. He's even addressing the now, not the forever. If you wish to enter into life, okay, he says, keep the commandments. Very interesting. Now, the Lord Jesus obviously understands that this guy's problem is he thinks he keeps them. All right? He thinks he's doing good. What other good thing? I'm, I'm coming to you. I've done all the good stuff. What else can I do that's good to inherit eternal life? Okay? And the Lord Jesus uh, begins, interesting, he shares five commandments and the second and greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord God, or you'll love your neighbors yourself. So why did Jesus share these? Well, I think he's making clear that this man is not alive to God, but dead to God. If you wish to enter life, you need to do these things. Now, the brilliance of the perfectly discerning living God addressing his sin, who thinks he's going to make it by what he does, is revealed here as the Lord Jesus responds to him, the perfect response. See, this this man at this point doesn't realize he's speaking to the living God who could give him life. He also doesn't recognize his inability to keep God's commandments, even the least difficult ones that Jesus shares here. So notice what the young man says in response. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? Now we know externally you might be able to quote unquote keep these things, uh, but Jesus revealed back in Matthew that uh, if you lust upon a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. If you're angry, you've committed murder. So maybe externally, yes, the, the, the one who is not cleansed from his filthiness thinks he can do it because, yes, maybe he hasn't done committed adultery officially. Maybe he hasn't done these things. Maybe he has honored his father and mother in a sense externally. But the heart is the issue. The heart is the issue. So he says, all these things I've kept, what am I still lacking? Now, at this point, Jesus doesn't take him uh, down a cookie-cutter route to convict him of his sin. Uh, We need to trust the Lord to give us wisdom in the same circumstances. Lord, what should you have me share? What passages should you have me share to expose where this man's sin is or woman's sin if we share? Then look at what the Lord Jesus does. So he said to him, if you wish to be complete... 
if you wish to be complete. That means come to the full end of, 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 the, of what you're looking to do, to be complete. You think you're, you're almost there and you got, what else can I do? If you, well, here's what else you can do. There's one thing you need to do. And this one hits the heart, you see. Because ultimately, this man didn't love the Lord God with all his heart, mind, and soul. The, this man loved his money over the Lord God. And so the Lord Jesus is exposing it, not through specifically the commandment, but through his disobedience to the commandment. You see, he's exposing that. And you know what he says here in the book of Mark? He says, and Jesus, looking at him, felt a love for him. And he said, one thing you lack, go sell all your possessions, give to the poor. He's saying, here's what you're missing. And so here in our passage, he says, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus perfectly nails it on the head because he's God in human flesh and he strikes him right in the obvious area of sin that he was unwilling to give up. He could list down the thing, I've done these things and these things and these things and Jesus reveals the most important one. You love your money more than you love me, you see? And that reveals that he's in sin and he needs a savior, you see? That he needs a savior because all of us are like that before we come to Jesus Christ. All of us are depending on something other than Jesus before we're saved. And so here, Jesus perfectly hits the nail on the head. He strikes him right in the obvious area of sin, his unwillingness to give up his riches. But here... We need to realize that being rich is not a sin, but but if you have riches, uh, they are a danger and they can keep you from trusting Christ. It is, we will see, difficult for a rich man. It is hard. It is impossible, as we'll see, to enter the kingdom of God, as we'll see it, unless they're willing to give it all up, as we'll see. So here, evidently, we're going to see this man tr- valued and trusted his riches on earth, which would be ultimately destroyed um, rather than the internal riches in a right relationship with the living God. So notice we have the Lord. He's calling for repentance and faith, I believe, but in a way that addresses exactly how this man is addressing him in response. Jesus said, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. If you wish, and the implication is, uh, you wish to obey the law to its max, you've done all these things, you want to do all of them, you want to be complete and obey the law all the way across the board? That's really what he's saying in a sense. Go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven. The implication is that if he would do this, then he would fulfill the law. But man cannot fulfill the law. Man is sinful. And Jesus is exposing this man's sin. Here we have the Lord expose it by effectively showing him what he loves with his heart, mind, and soul. He's calling for him to turn from his love of wealth rather than love of God, which is in the way of coming to faith in Jesus. Remember what was said back in Matthew chapter 6? Turn back there, Matthew chapter 6. And I believe we'll see this man uh, should have just said, I, help me, I, I can't do this. You know, I need you. You know, he, 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 see, he can't even turn from that, even sell it and be saved. That wouldn't work either. He's trying. You see what I'm saying? He's exposing the heart. It has to be a heart change that then would not care for those things. You see? Uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your, there will your heart be also. The lamp of the body is the eye, and therefore if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If, there is, if therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or money. And so then, Jesus is not effectively saying outright repent, but that's been his message all along. Matthew chapter 1, repent and believe the gospel. All he needed to do was acknowledge his sinfulness concerning his love of money and turn to Jesus for forgiveness. 
Jesus is not saying if you go do something, you're going to be saved. He's exposing this that this guy has a love, a love for his money. By virtue of telling him what to do, he's commanding him to turn, to com- repent and turn from his love of money and trust in the Lord. Folks, this is at the core of the gospel, uh, to unveil people's sin based on the word of God and to call them to see themselves rightly that they might turn to the Lord in repentance and faith. You know, the apostle uh, Paul says in his last letter, speaking to Timothy, about the scriptures that are able to give you the wisdom or knowledge that leads to salvation. Sharing the truth that leads to the knowledge that you're sinful and you need a savior. And so then, this this, uh, man, as we will see, is told to turn and give it all up and follow Jesus. Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And folks, uh, if this man would have been willing to do so, willing to do so, and uh, to t- give up his treasure on earth, that which would be destroyed, he would have treasure forever. He needs to be willing to do so, to recognize what he's trusting in and turn to Jesus instead. Look back in Matthew chapter 10. Uh, Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 10, verse 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword, Jesus says. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Hey, I didn't come to bring peace right now. I came to show who is who. They're going to be able to see who is who. And, and, and he says here, he who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take up his cross and fall after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life shall lose it. He who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. Then look at Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. We're going to see this man needed to be willing to give up his life. He didn't have to run out and do it. He needed to be willing to do it. And that would, after he's saved, be in a, be, be able to do it. You see? Um, and he would want to follow Jesus, just like the disciples who gave up everything, right? They got saved and they gave everything up. Right? But they didn't give everything up to get saved. Jesus isn't saying, go give up everything to get saved. He's exposing where his love and trust is, you see? So then, and he summoned the multitude, verse, this is Mark chapter 8, 34. And he summoned the multitude with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. Whoever wishes, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake shall save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." You see, you need to be willing to give up everything to follow Jesus Christ. But you need to recognize, if you're not, that's sin. And confess it and go to God. Return and repent. That's your problem. You are sinful. You don't want to give it up. You are in sin, you see. And God will give you, as he exposes your sin, the ability to turn to Jesus who will forgive you of your sins and then enable you to give those things up and follow Jesus. Turn him a little farther down, Mark, or excuse me, Matthew 9:27. You see, the disciples they gave everything up. They came to Jesus, they believed, and then they gave everything up. They they followed him. Matthew uh, 19:27, just down past our passage. Matthew 19:27, just the verse right after the end of our passage. And this is after all that we're going to see today. Then Peter answered and said, "Behold, we've left everything." And followed you. Unlike this one who was unwilling to do that, we did. We did. And he says, Where, then what will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. I believe that's possibly the millennium when he's sitting on his glorious throne. And he says here, You also shall sit upon twelve tribes, thrones, 
judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and everyone who has who has left houses and or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms in my sake shall receive many times as much and shall inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. God is calling upon you to repent of your sin. Your love of money in this case, his trust in money, repent of it, to turn to him acknowledging his sin, that he doesn't love the Lord with his whole heart, mind, and soul. He loves his money. He's calling upon him to see his sin. And he's calling upon us to repent of our sin. Are you willing to turn, acknowledge your sin, and turn to Jesus Christ for forgiveness? Or you can keep your life, you can keep your stuff until you die, and then you won't take it with you, and then you'll be punished for your sin forever and ever. Or you can give up everything with your heart, and it, will, it may be manifest in your actions absolutely too, if your heart's changed, right? And turn to Jesus in repentance and faith, and gain Christ, and gain eternal life, gain everything, you see. So Jesus is not proposing a works salvation that this man must do these things. He is exposing his sin. He's exposing his sin. So how does this man respond? Back in our passage, verse uh, 22. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieved, for he was one who owned much property. Uh, We see um, that he went away grieved. We see this in Mark, that he went away grieved. Uh, Actually, Mark says it this way, verse 22, or Mark chapter 10. But when these words... But at these words, he fell, his face fell, and he went away grieved. Um, Luke says it this way in Luke chapter 18, verse 23. But when he heard these things, he became very sad because he was extremely rich. The reality is the Lord God calls for us to give up everything to gain everything. But in that call to give up everything, it is the exposing of our sin. It's the exposing of the things that we hold to which keep us from actually being saved. And so he was grieved, and he went away. He went away because he owned much property. What an eternally tragic statement. This man was unwilling to give up his life to gain eternal life. The same man who ran up to Jesus and bowed down and asked the right question, in a sense. Because there is something that you do to inherit eternal life, but it's not a work. Uh, it is belief. It is believing that is a work of God. And so then, what would the Lord say about you? Would he share the same thing about you? Have you been convicted of your sin and been unwilling to give it up? The reality is, if you get, if you are convicted of your sin and you reject that, um, you can't be saved. Now, Jesus knows when that happens. Uh, but look at uh, Matthew chapter 13. It should scare you. Matthew 13. When you've heard the truth and you reject it and you walk away, and this is the Lord Jesus speaking to him, it's a very scary thing. Matthew 13, verse 18. Hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away what's been sown in his heart. This is the seed which is thrown beside the road. Now go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You see, if you do not believe that you need salvation, you don't believe your sin is in the way, and you don't trust Jesus and you walk away, you're in deep trouble. You're in deep trouble. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. When you reject the truth of God, you don't believe in Christ, God allows Satan to blind your mind that you wouldn't be saved. This is a very serious thing. He says here that they might not see the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ who is in the image of God. This is a tragic, tragic situation. The man 
went away grieved. He went away unsaved. Will you walk away or will you repent and follow Jesus? Now, as we finish, the Lord begins to share with his disciples, and this is something that we must understand, that salvation is all of God and not of man. Notice that Jesus reveals to his disciples that uh, through this man's rejection of him, the impossibility of being saved under your own efforts, but it is only through God that you can be saved, and in that case, all things are possible. Look back in our passage, Matthew 19. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieved, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples, now in our passage, Jesus is saying to his disciples, but we see in the other passage that he looks to this man and then says this to his disciples. We see that uh, in uh, verse 24 of Luke 18, I'll share it with you. And Jesus looked at him and said... How hard is it for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? So he looks at this man who is going away, and he shares to his disciples this this terrifying truth, by the way. He said, Jesus said to his disciples, verse 23, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, then who can be saved? And they needed to learn this lesson because they would be the foundation of the church, sharing the word of God. And he says there, and looking upon them, Jesus said to them, with men, this is impossible. It's salvation, by the way, the context. But with God, all things are possible. That's speaking of salvation. That's the context. So we have the Lord Jesus commenting to his disciples as he's looking at this man who has turned and walked away. And notice Jesus doesn't run after him. He doesn't run after him to try to talk him into the kingdom. He shared the truth clearly and righteously. The man rejected it, and he did not go after him. And then notice here, he shares with his disciples these truths. He gives them an illustration. It's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom by illustrating, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's a very simple illustration. Uh, Jesus doesn't mean it's difficult, as we're going to see. Other passages really help us understand the context. He's saying it's impossible. It's possible. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, there's all kinds of commentaries about what this means, and the Jews say the camel's the largest animal, and the needle's the smallest hole, and that's true. You know, He's not speaking of the gate in Jerusalem that camels would kneel down and go through, and it was very difficult. He's speaking of an actual eye of a needle and an actual camel. It is easier for, for that to be saved than a, a rich man to be saved. Let me say this exactly what it is. It is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for this impossible thing to happen than for a rich man to be saved. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. It's a very simple illustration. It is impossible for someone who relies on his riches to enter the kingdom of God. It's impossible. It's impossible. And so he was trying to have this man see his sin that he might repent and turn, which would be in the context of realizing that he was relying on his money, and he loved his money. It's not what you have that saves you. It is what Jesus, it is Jesus who saves. This man believed he was righteous, that he kept God's law, culturally speaking. Uh, he believed, and in the culture, they believed that wealth was a sign of blessing, God's blessing. So in this man's case, uh, combined with his declaration that he had kept the law and he believed that he believed is righteous, he thought he had done everything, ultimately. But with man, it is impossible. It is impossible. In uh, Mark chapter 10, Mark chapter 10, take a look here. He not only talks about a rich man here, he expands this. Mark chapter 10, verse 23. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard is it for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? And his disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? 
emphatically. It is impossible. How hard is it? It is impossible. And guess what? The disciples got it. Because notice what they said. Then who? It says, verse 25, And when the disciples heard this, they were very astonished. They said, Then who could be saved? They got it. It's impossible. So who could be saved? And Jesus looking upon them, Jesus said to them, With men this is impossible. With God all things are possible. This is the key to evangelism. With man, it is impossible. You cannot save anyone through your own efforts, through your own actions, through your own systems. God is the one who saves, but he uses us when we obey him and abide in him and share his truth discerningly in the moments that he opens for us to share. Salvation is impossible with man. There's nothing you can do to save anyone. There's nothing anyone can do to save themselves. It's impossible. But with God... All things are possible. You see, salvation is only possible through the living God, and God has made it clear that salvation is through his Son alone. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Let's turn there, Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 10. Let's start there. Speaking about uh, uh, this man who was healed... He says, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus the Naz- Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, that's so important, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. He, speaking of Jesus, is the stone which, the, which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the very cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else For there is no other name under heaven that has been granted among men by which we must be saved. With God, all things are possible, but it is only possible through Jesus, through repentance and faith in Jesus, to come to him uh, like a child, recognizing your total need of salvation. There's nothing you can do. Believing in him for salvation, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So often when we talk to people, we don't uh, share truth that reveals one's sin and thus their need to be humbled, you see? And we share, we may share Jesus or the, 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 what he's done, but we don't share what they need to be saved from. We don't expose those things. And God might give us, if we're willing to, the opportunity to discerningly be ready to give an answer why we have the hope and thus to share Jesus. This rich young ruler should have fell on his knees and recognized his absolute inability to keep God's perfect standards. I can't do it. But he went away. He went away. He could have said, I can't do it. Jesus, save me. And he would have been saved. But instead, he was grieved because he owned much property, and he went away. Some of you need to do this today. You need to bow down before the Lord and say, I can't do it. Lord, save me. Lord, save me. And he will save you if you acknowledge your sin and trust in him for salvation. So how are we to evangelize those God brings into our path? Uh, We've seen some principles today from the Lord Jesus himself. One, we need to be reminded unless one turns and repents of their sin, becomes like a little dependent child, uh, you can't be saved. If they don't fully trust in Christ for salvation, you cannot be saved. Secondly, we need to learn from the example of how our Lord wisely exposed this man's sin and thus called upon him to repent by exposing his sin. And lastly, we need to understand that salvation is fully from God and not from man. There's nothing we can do to save anyone. There's nothing uh, they can do to be saved. It is through the Lord Jesus Christ that one is saved, and the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So then, how does it apply? Are you relying on anything other than Jesus Christ? Then you need to repent and turn and believe in him. Secondly, we need to recognize uh, that... uh, We need to stay away from 
wicked men who share a gospel that doesn't expose sin. Stay away from that. Third, we need to recognize that Jesus called upon them to repent concerning their sin that was obvious. And then after they didn't, he didn't chase after them and he didn't follow them. We need to be wise, trust the Lord. When he opens the doors to share his word, we need to lovingly share the gospel. And if he doesn't open the door, we need to keep our mouths shut and pray for opportunities. And lastly, we need to remember, with man it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. That takes off all the pressure. We can't save our relatives who aren't saved. We can't save those out there, even though we want to. We can't do that. It has to be God through his people with the gospel uh, that brings about salvation. With him, all things are possible. And lastly, um, knowing that salvation is impossible with men, we should be so thankful that God saved us. So thankful that we were saved by his grace. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the example of your son. And Lord, uh, it is um, tragic and and horrifying to see someone reject your son Jesus and and go to their their destiny in hell, Lord. And I pray there's not one here who is going to reject uh, your son's free offer of salvation, your offer through him. I pray there'd be nothing in the way that if there's anyone here who's not saved, they would just realize their absolute need for salvation and they would cry out to your son Jesus to save them because with you all things are possible and we know that whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And Father, for us, help us learn from our Lord how to be discerning, how to lovingly share your word and I pray that we might have opportunities for the gospel and that we would allow you to bring about uh, those opportunities, and we pray that people would be saved. They would trust in your son, Jesus. So, Lord, thank you for your word, and uh, thank you for saving us. In Jesus' name.